You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, the 110th episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me today is Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor, how's it going? Fantastic. So we've got a big show today. We've got a lot of stuff to get through, and we're going to try and do it really quickly, right? Great. Here, here we go. So the first thing that I want to talk about is it's sort of two different related topics. First of all, it's it's the iPad and the vision for post-PC computing. And it's also uh, sort of a comment about what's going on with Apple and Pro users, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to start there. Uh, we had reader email, listener email from a fellow named John, and I want to thank you for writing. And it says, I'm not sure if... This is a matter of of attention to quality, but Apple engineers are trying really hard to make quality software, and yet we're suffering from it. He says, what's going on with Apple and Pro users? Is is there a shift away from the Pro user, the high-end user? Um, You know, historically, Apple used to live and die with the success of print quality on laser printers. That's now eras old, decades old. They used to make a laser printer. They used to make beautiful monitors. Now they have the one that's LG made that that got recalled because it had Wi-Fi interference. So, you know, he's, he says the iPad Pro doesn't have basic features like drag and drop between windows that uh, it's, it's really difficult. He p- points out Swift, right? You can, you can write Swift on iOS, but you can't actually compile it on iOS. And, and my own comment would be that Swift itself is clunky because, um, you know, the thing that Apple ships as code samples don't even run now. O- old code samples from WWDC don't even compile because they've changed the language so much. Right. Um, so, you know, first of all, what's the meaning of pro? And second of all, that, that, you know, his point was using the iPad to do anything like Tapetian sand painting, where you have to do everything by, uh, by hand, file by file. So the, the difficulty is, is, you know, who's championing what here and what are, what's, what's really going on with Apple and their focus on users and pro users and, and what, what's, how do we make sense of all this? Well, I mean, uh, Tim Cook uh, spoke a little bit about this uh, to some extent uh, at Apple's annual shareholder meeting this week, um, and our own Dan was there and uh, put together a report just with some notes of interest on it. And uh, he basically gave it, you know, depending on how you look at it, I'm sure critics would call it lip, lip service, where he said uh, that you will see us do more with Macs and professional software, is what he said to shareholders. Um, I... I <laughs> This is one of those things where I, I think that Apple's definition of pro uh, and especially old school Mac pros that have been doing this for a while, their definition of pro is very, very, very different. Um, many professionals, especially if you've been doing it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you're set in your ways, right? Uh, and as you should be. I mean, it works for you. You've, you've cultivated a business or living that way. Um, why would you want to change everything that you're doing? Uh, Apple's focus is a little different, um, and they think that, you know, in the case of, you know, an iMac, for example, or even an iPad Pro, uh, that's enough power for most professional users. Uh, I think the vocal, whether they're a minority or not, I don't know, but there's a vocal subset of Mac users, and certainly our audience and our listeners, uh, who would say that uh, an iMac, for example, is not good enough. You need a Mac Pro. Uh, a MacBook well, Pro that that cuts corners is not good enough. You need something that offers a little bit more. Uh, and and a lot of these debates fade away, but some people will will hang on to them uh, to their dying breath. Things like upgradable RAM and uh, replaceable hard drives okay, and things like okay, that. Okay, so that's the speeds and feeds side of it, right? 
I really need a quad core processor. I really need an eight core processor, whatever. Right. right. But, but the other part of this is software quality and software availability. Aperture is dead in favor of using Adobe solution. Mm-hmm. Final cut pro or just final cut at 10 or final cut X, however you want to call it. Right. That final cut pro used to be the bread and butter of Hollywood and TV. And everything was edited in, and you could tell because this credits would roll, it would say Final Cut Pro. Mm-hmm. And now a large number of those professionals have, have moved to using a Windows machine with Adobe's Premiere on it. So Apple has seeded that market. I mean, obviously not all have. There are certainly many, many productions still done with Final Cut. Uh, I, I said a large number without having raw numbers behind it. So bad on me. But, you know, that's me slapping my hand. The, uh, I, you see it happening. It's not something that, that is, is made up. It's, it's happening in number. Yeah, and, and this is a question of whether Apple wants to stay in that business. You know, like we talk about routers and other things. Um, does Apple want to stay in the high-end pro business? Do they want to stay in the router business? Do they want to stay in the portable media player business? Is it worth it to them? Is it worth it to their bottom line? Is it where they see the future of computing going? Is it something that lets them stay relevant? These are all questions that Apple has to weigh. Um, I mean, clearly, it's not a priority for them. I don't think anybody can disagree with that, no matter what Apple says. Uh, you know, the Mac Pro is is the best example of that. Whether we're talking about speeds and feeds or software, the fact that they haven't really done anything to embrace uh, that platform uh, is is all you really need to know. Yeah. And when it comes to wireless hardware, I can kind of understand it from the standpoint of Apple has proven what they needed to prove. At the time that they introduced the first airport base station, wireless technology was in a really rough state. If you wanted a Wi-Fi router at that time, you got something from Buffalo or uh, early, early, early Linksys. But it really, at that time, when I was 802.11b, I had a Buffalo router and airport was the only other game in town, really. And the Apple Airport showed people that you could do it. You could do it nicely. You could have software support that made it easy as opposed to having to send people to go to Cisco, Cisco Networking School to figure out how to use it. You know, I have a Cisco Aeronet 802.11b card, and I had an Aeronet router from back then, and it was nearly impossible to configure. Yeah. And Airport showed the way. Not, now not to that, mention that the connections were terrible. You were better off having a wired connection. Well, right. But, but you know, people don't run Ethernet because it's not fun to run Ethernet. But the early so, days of Wi-Fi were pretty bad. It was it was horrific, and Apple showed people that it was possible to make this easier to configure. And then Linksys followed suit, and, and we had wireless that was fairly easy to configure. Here we are, uh, nominally about 15 or 16 years later, right? I had, I had 802.11b in 2000. Here we are s- nearly 17 years later. Everyone makes wireless easy to configure at this point. So does Apple need to stay in the market? Probably uh, not. I think they should, but clearly at the they time, don't. Think, think back. At the time, they sold an iMac, and the iMac had, uh, not in its very first iteration, but in its later second generation, it had Ethernet, a modem, and Wi-Fi. And the idea that you could buy the computer, you could buy the router, and call it a day and have wireless internet was pretty huge. And the wireless routers at that time had a 56K modem in them. Yeah, That's I- how far we've come. It's It's a big deal that... We, we don't really what, – what's left to prove in this space? Setup is easy. Coverage is fairly easy. It, what, what's the problem? Coming from the company that can't even get AirDrop to work consistently, there's a lot to prove. 
uh, well, there's a lot for them to prove that they can live up to it. But I mean, do, do they have to solve wireless networking for people at this stage? I think that if they were to tie things into their ecosystem with their routers, you make your routers Windows compatible as they've always done, but give more features uh, to Mac users and iOS users and those sorts of things. Um, I don't see why not. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those it's one of those things where there's a lot of untapped potential there. I think that they could go to if they were interested in it. Uh, but even then, even without doing that, they still deliver a quality product. Right. So one of the things that we wrote about was that the the campaign showing that an iPad Pro is better than a computer. In many ways it is, yeah. Okay, so the campaign has things like uh, an iPad Pro doesn't get viruses. Mm-hmm. An iPad Pro is better than a computer in response to a tweet that says an iPad Pro is not even close to being a computer. Um, an iPad Pro that has LTE support says you can get internet pretty much anywhere, right? Or... You can have Microsoft Word on an iPod, which, of course, you can if you have the uh, Office 365 subscription going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you can do printing. You don't have to have a, a computer connected to get a printer mm-hmm. working. You can print wirelessly over AirPrint. So an iPad is, is suitable in a number of ways for that kind of thing. And Apple's running this ad campaign to show it. It's interesting because I was watching tweets this morning. And, you know, we know that that uh, Federico over at Mac Stories has been going iPad only for years. So he's he's always been the the early leading on that one. But uh, Neil Seibart, who runs Above Avalon, which is a newsletter, and he's an analyst, um, tweeted his frustrations with Mac OS. He said, I should start counting all the times that Mac OS crashes and simply go to iPad Pro. And, you know, his work is is some word processing because obviously he's writing the newsletter. But at the same time, he's also doing uh, publishing through a blog. He's doing uh, Excel spreadsheets and and not insignificant stuff in those spreadsheets. And you're going to do that on iPad, which is a little interesting because I've, I've mostly seen people viewing spreadsheets on the iPad rather than tapping in the individual cells and things like that. It's always been kind of cumbersome for me to navigate a spreadsheet on an iPad. I think that the strength of the iPad is its weaknesses, and that's by design. It's essentially a single task device, maybe if you want to do two at once, but anything more than that, and it becomes kind of cumbersome. But in some ways, that's freeing. Uh, it is more enjoyable to use your iPad for many daily computing tasks, um, whether it's media consumption or even uh, creation in some ways. Uh, because you don't have all the distractions and all of the stuff that you ordinarily have on your computer, and you can't have it. it. It's designed that way. So by having a completely different operating system, a different interface, and this one task at a time type of thing, um, that is always going to turn away power users. But to some people, you can find freedom and constraint. Um, you know, you have to define the the boundaries of the sandbox before you can play in it. And if you uh, let it go free, then it can kill productivity. So in many ways, switching to an iPad for some people, depending on your computing style, your needs, your personality, uh, your tendencies, uh, going on an iPad, it could actually make you more productive. Yeah. Now, I've been using my MacBook Pro in a slightly different way for these past week. Uh, and I was telling you about this before we started recording. What I've been doing is I've been using full screen or split screen on almost every application. I've been using full screen and split screen on my on my email. I've been using full screen on my other email account. So I've got I've got a Gmail window using a fluid window to make it a browser kind of thing as full screen. 
I've got Airmail, which I'm using for Exchange servers, uh, as full screen. I've got Fantastical, which we wrote a review about this week. Uh, I think Mike Mike published that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been using Fantastical as my calendar for ages, and I love it. I'm using that in full screen. Uh, I've got the uh, IA Writer and Mark II as my editor for doing stories in full screen. I've got Keynote with four different presentations open it in full screen. Uh, numbers, because I've got some charts going into those. And that was also where I did the uh, the Wi-Fi strength charts for that I used for the Eero review that we did. Mm-hmm. So I've got all of these applications running in full screen, and I've just been using the four-finger swipe on the trackpad gesture to switch between them. And it's been really nice. Do you find it cumbersome when you have, uh, you know, this reminds me of early days of Apple Watch almost when you have uh, a bunch of uh, uh, apps in whatever they call it, the glances view, and you have to scroll through like a million of them to get to it. Like, do you find that switching, trying to get from your first app to your last app is a a tedious process? Uh, If I were using the four finger swipe to get there, it might be. But since I use command tab to application switch frequently. Mm -hmm. It's the same experience as always having had to command tab. Do you find it cumbersome pressing, holding down command and pressing tab three times? Not really. Sometimes when I use full screen mode, I rarely do it on my Mac. It's just not the way I like to do it. But I, I find myself wishing that I could still access the dock while in full screen mode. I agree. That would be helpful just because. So one of the things that I end up doing a lot is dragging files into applications, mm-hmm, whether yeah. it's uh, you know uploading an image or um, launching something or whatever, mm-hmm. right? There are reasons to drag and drop a file onto a target to drop it, right? And so if I have a folder in the dock that I can click and have it fan up and then grab the image from that folder mm-hmm. and then drop it on the application, I wouldn't have to switch back to a desktop that has the Finder application on it. Yeah, I, I think the most telling thing about this, at least in terms of Apple's vision, is when you go into an Apple store now and they have those promo videos they show uh, and they'll show off, you know, like a 12 inch MacBook or whatever. Um, it's always being used with the apps in full screen and switch between them with the four finger gesture as though you're on an iPad. Um, this is really this continuity uh, between platforms that Apple's been pushing for a while. And I think that they view the future of computing as this super simple one task at a time kind of focused thing because that will be that will cover the needs of you know 95 percent of computer users um and that is not to say that because you're doing one task at a time or two at a time that they are simple tasks they can be extremely complex um but this you know over inundation with multitasking and all that um, seems to be a computing philosophy that Apple is, at least in terms of its marketing and how it's positioning its products and pushing the future of iOS, it, it seems to be looking to get away from. Yeah. So personally, I know two people that have gone from Mac to iPad full-time. Um, my my wife had a MacBook from late 2008, one of the aluminum ones, um, and it was giving her a little bit of trouble. It was on uh, Snow Leopard. And so I gave her an iPad mini with a bridge keyboard to use. And she's been using that for months now, happily. I gave the MacBook, which I formatted and put El Capitan on, to my daughter who goes to school with it because her school wrote and said, every student this year will take a a laptop or a Chromebook or something to school. We recommend against iPads because kids break them, was their initial letter home. They break it more than they would a laptop? That for whatever reason, they said people who bring expensive tablets, <clears throat> iPads, to uh, school tend to drop them and the screens are broken and everyone's unhappy about that. 
So I mean, like your like your laptop's gonna do any better if you drop that? They, for whatever reason, they were big fans of the hundred and twenty dollar Chromebooks because if you drop them, no one cares as much as if you break I a five hundred dollar yeah, iPad. Um, but I sent her with this with the MacBook, and she was you know she was the coolest kid because she had a Mac, and the other kids had junky Chromebooks, and um, she came home the other week and she said it's it's just too heavy. It's just too heavy because it's well, yeah, because it's a MacBook, right? It weighs right. four pounds, and, um, and plus another pound for the stupid power brick. So she was she was upset about it, and she said, "Dad, can I can I take my iPad to school? Well, can you do everything you need to do at school on it? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, she no longer has to carry the charger because it's got much longer battery life. Mm-hmm. She uses the Google Docs apps that they use for the Chrome kick, Chromebook kids in school anyway on her iPad. So she's got slides, docs, and uh, sheets on there and it's working for her. And, you know, she came home and she's loving it. No problem. She's got a 64 gig iPad mini too that's, uh, that's in there doing the job. So she doesn't even open the MacBook any longer. I, I, I think that the iPad is the perfect computer for many people. Uh, I, I realize that a lot of pro users or whatever or traditionalists on the Mac will cry blasphemy to that. But I think it's absolutely true. And I think that your wife and your daughter are two great prime use cases there. Somebody who needs a computer that's going to last all day, that's super light, that's versatile, that can be whatever you need when you want, that has more apps than any other platform available. Uh, that That's an iPad. I, I wonder why we don't have iBooks author for iPad yet. Why don't we have Xcode for iPad? Well, we totally should have Xcode for iPad, especially since we were talking about compiling Swift code on the iPad. Yeah, I, I don't think that that Apple should turn iOS into macOS. I know a lot of people want that. I, but I think they should take the training wheels off a lot of the apps. Uh, some of the apps feel like they're they're close or not, you know, but they're not quite there. Some of the apps aren't even available like Xcode or Final Cut or whatever. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go all in. Let's get Xcode on the iPad. Let's get Final Cut. You want to call it a pro platform? Let's make it professional and find use cases that are superior on a touchscreen, on a tablet, on a super light, portable in the field format. Uh, I can see many use cases where professional users, developers, film makers, whatever, would prefer an iPad over a Mac. They may not be able to use it to replace their Mac entirely, but they could replace a lot of what they do on a Mac with the current hardware and software. I think it's capable. I'm going to take what you said and go one step further. All of those apps that you named, bring them to iOS, like you said, and add the sharing that we got in the latest edition of iWork. Absolutely. The sharing that we have across notes, the sharing that we have across pages and all of those things. Put that into Xcode for iOS. Put that into iBooks Author for iOS. Put that into Final Cut for iOS. Make all of those projects that people can work on collaboratively I think that would be huge. Mm-hmm. Start your work on one device, finish it on another. They kind of have that on iMovie a little bit. Um, well, you know, obviously, start you your work that. on one device, finish it on another. Start your work and invite people to collaborate, right. collaborate. with you on your work, mm-hmm. so they can make changes and you can work together on it. Leverage yes. the power of multiple platforms and of the cloud, um, and you will, you could really see these devices take off in ways that you wouldn't expect. It doesn't mean that it's going to replace a Mac, but there are use cases where these applications are better served on a tablet, period. 
I don't know that it has to replace a Mac. I think it could. I don't think it has to, no. I, I it's, think it it's just about it. what's the best computer to use for the job you need to do. Yeah, I, I uh, heard, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, Phil Schiller said in an interview once that Apple's philosophy on their products is you start with the smallest screen they offer an iPhone, and then you continually go up to a bigger screen for the task that you need at that moment. So ideally, they want you to be able to get everything done on your iPhone. If you need something a little bigger, then you go to an iPad. If you need something a little bigger, then you go to a MacBook. And then maybe if you need something a little bigger than that, you go to an iMac. And that's kind of how they are viewing this this computing platform. And now if you start to throw in uh, the Apple Watch, you know, maybe you could do some very basic tasks on there before switching to your phone. Now you have these, you know, five, six different screen sizes that you can go through um, as needed. And I think for most people, they could stop at the iPad and be done. Yeah, I got to say something about the Apple Watch, though. So Target, for example, just updated their app for the for iOS. And in their latest update, they actually removed support for the Apple Watch. <laughs> Why? Because because no one wants it. Because no one knows you know, what what third party watch apps really do watch well. Yeah, I, well, that's that's a good question because what do you need on your watch, right? Um, I mean, I, could, I would venture you, that most people don't don't really care about third party watch apps. I would say that most watch wearers, and I'm going out on a limb here. I'm prepared to get listener email telling me I'm wrong. Um, are are using notifications? Are mm-hmm. using the the Apple Pay? Obviously, are, are using things that Apple provides out of the box. That that Target building an Apple Watch app was because they could, and they thought it'd be something big, and it turned out not to be. Maybe I mean I could see some uh, retail applications for it for some users. You know, uh, store card kind of stuff. Um, have it easily scannable, assuming that there's scanners in the store, work with it, don't have to pull out your phone, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, I, I don't know how big of a market there is for it, um, but I don't think that that's necessarily a condemnation of, of of the Apple Watch as much as it is, what do you really need to have on your wrist? You know, um, Just because people make apps for platform uh, doesn't mean that that we need them. <laughs> you know, there's well, a lot it doesn't of- mean that they've made the right app, for example. Right, true, but- that's true. But also, you know, in, in a sense, it is a small condemnation of Apple because they made this thing and then opened it up to developers, and presumably, you know. Well, I mean, I I know there are games for Apple Watch and people play games on their watch. I don't really. A understand Pokemon that. Go made it there, right? And and that's one that, <laughs> but that's one that makes some sense to me, yeah, uh, because of the nature of the game and walking around and not wanting to stare at your phone while you walk around and getting those kind of subtle notifications. It, it makes a lot of sense to me in that way. And you, you kind of have to deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Obviously, the killer apps for your Apple Watch, most of them are built in, uh, which is the way it should be. But it's basically notifications, uh, which you can get for all apps on iOS. Um, it is fitness apps, which there's there's one built in, and there's a number of other options that you can download. Um, and then other than that, uh, you know, uh, I would say Apple Pay is your, is your killer app, uh, being able to pay for stuff on your wrist. Beyond that, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, I really uh, have been enjoying, I've talked about the Carrot Watch, uh, Carrot's Watch app uh, for weather, um, the notifications that it has, the, the custom uh, complications and stuff. I think that's a huge success. I think they knocked it out of the park. Um, and that's not a category where I would have thought that I needed to replace Apple's weather app, but I haven't looked back since I did. All right. So, let's let's talk about iPhone. There's there's a rumor here that says that 
we're going to get, you know, there, there's a competing rumor, right? One, well, there's been some noise about getting USB-C on iOS devices. And, the, you know, the, the Twitter sphere has been abuzz with that. The, the news has talked about it a little bit. We wrote a story saying that, that Ming-Chi Kuo says that we're not going to get USB-C on, um, well, no, what he said, he said, he said we're, we're, we're going to get expected to use Type-C power delivery technology in this year's iPhones. But in a lightning connector. I'll lay this story out for you. Here's what happened. Help me out. Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal, which has a history of being pretty good on Apple rumors, published a story that uh, I won't name any names. uh, And this is not to pick on the Wall Street Journal. I mean, hey, we all mess stuff up sometimes, right? But we at Apple Insider took this with a grain of salt from the start. If you look at our headline, it says questionable rumor is the first two words of the headline because uh, that's what this is. I I just don't buy it. Alternative Um, fact. (laughs) I don't know about that, but um, basically what happened was the Wall Street Journal ran a story in which they very poorly worded way suggested that Apple would replace the lightning port on the iPhone with USB-C. The way it was worded, which should have been done more clear, you could potentially interpret as them saying that they were going to get rid of not the... Uh, lightning port, but the full-size USB connector on the other side of the cable to plug it into the wall. That makes sense to me. However, yes. they said that Apple was going to get rid of the lightning cable, is what they said, which made it sound like they're going to get rid of the lightning port. What the Wall Street Journal meant in their report, I don't really know. Taking at face value, it sounds like they were going to get rid of the lightning port, and that's why we presented it as a questionable rumor. There were some other websites that kind of ran with it, and there were some people that were excited because they're all in on USB-C and stuff. But uh, I'll be honest with you, folks. It's not happening. Um, well, so there are a couple of good reasons. First of all, <laughs> many when you tell reasons. someone, when, when, when you tell a regular consumer, by the way, they're going to change the port again, they're like, holy crap, I have all these cables and they just did it five years ago. Why yeah. are we doing it again? They're ready to kill somebody when you tell them. Yeah. And the second part of it is that Apple collects a license fee called MFI or made for iPod or made for iPhone from every one of those ports sold. And so they're not going to be that quick to give up those licenses, right? No, and and the the more the most telling thing to me, uh, beyond the licensing, because I think at the end of the day, Apple would walk away from the licensing if they felt it was best for the consumer. Okay. Um, I I think that really what it comes down to is Apple has doubled down on Lightning in the last couple of years. It used to just be that you would get Lightning on your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod, and that was it. But yeah, now, now you got a pencil. Now you have a pencil. Now you have a Siri remote. Now you have the Beats X headphones. You have the Beats Solo 3 headphones. You have the power uh, or the Beats Pill is recharged through Lightning. You have the Magic Keyboard and Magic Mouse recharged through Lightning. It has become Apple's default accessory port um, for devices that tie into its ecosystem for smaller devices for recharging. And Apple is not going to keep releasing a bunch of Beats headphones and other accessories that connect through Lightning and then ditch the Lightning connector. That would be absolutely insane. And by the way, if you wanted to put a USB-C port on a device, you'd put it on an iPad first before an iPhone. Because an iPad, you're trying to position as more of a traditional computing device. That way you could connect more accessories to it. So it it doesn't make any sense to put it on the iPhone first. I, I think the Wall Street Journal blew it on this one, and that's why we called it as such. And so... Kind of backing that up, uh, a report came out uh, uh, as we record this on Thursday uh, from everybody's favorite analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo with KGI Securities, saying that Apple is going to use quick charge capabilities from the USB Type-C specification. However, 
the uh, phone itself is still going to ship with a lightning port, which it goes in line, like I said earlier, with what I would expect. I think that this year's phone will ship with a lightning port and probably a new power brick with USB-C on it and a USB-C to lightning cable. Yeah. Now, the fun reason for doing all this USB-C stuff, the reason why it makes sense from a, a, a nerd standpoint, is that when you have one cable with the two ends being exactly the same and you can flip them over because they're symmetric, then you, you no longer have to even think that hard, right? The cable plugs into the laptop, the cable plugs into the phone, all job done. Right. So it, it makes it's appealing from that one standpoint, but it's broken in terms of all of the peripherals that already use Lightning, like you named. And one of the things that I didn't even consider until I reviewed the latest MacBook Pro was I have had just about every MagSafe cable I've ever owned fray completely, just like completely disintegrate. And if I ever want to replace a uh, MagSafe adapter, it's going to cost me 80 bucks. Um, yes, if I have a new MacBook Pro, while I don't have MagSafe, which is a I consider a bad thing, um, the, the, switching to the USB-C connector means that I can use any certified cable and they're much cheaper. And as long as I have my power brick, I'm good to go. So if my cable frays or gets lost or whatever, uh, it's much cheaper to fix and replace without having to go and buy an entirely new MagSafe connector. So... Uh, in that respect, that's actually much more consumer friendly. Yes. And you can use any of the third party solutions for a MagSafe like experience. And if that cable, like you say, fails on you, you go back to a regular cable without a whole lot of frustration. Yep, exactly. And you can plug it into any port on the device. So there there are reasons to do it. And that's a great example of, you know, Apple's patents and licensing and whatever, where they see a situation, they're not afraid to walk away from it for something that is ultimately better for the consumer. Uh, if if there was a compelling reason for Apple to ditch Lightning, I think that they would probably do it uh, just because I think they want to get rid of ports entirely for starters. But they also realize that while this year's phone is probably going to have wireless charging in it, um, it's not ideal in many ways and probably won't be as fast as a wired connection. And so that's why you're going to get the best of both worlds and you get a new faster charge capability with the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 7S and 7S Plus uh, via a lightning cable that's going to come in the box. Right. And it will probably also necessitate coming with a, uh, a proper adapter that supplied enough wattage for that, that quick charge capability. Right. And hopefully we don't have another Note 7 on our hands. Right. Well, I don't think that's the case. I mean, this... So in, in the USB 3 spec, in the USB-C spec, there's a, a thing called PD or power delivery mm -hmm. where it specifies being able to supply up to a, a ridiculous number of watts for the ability to charge laptops and things like that. But you can also use it to charge the phone faster. And that's what I would bet is being used here. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I uh, think that it was... Before the spec existed, there was a Qualcomm power, uh, quick charge technology. But this is... This is the quick charge that's part of power delivery from USB-C. And supposedly a poor implementation of quick charge and or uh, battery uh, constraints in the Note 7 is what led to that disaster. So um, uh, I don't think we'll see that disaster anytime soon from any phone manufacturer because no one wants to be the next Samsung on that. Right. One. I, I think you know, the everyone's watching their their. You know, their, their charge circuit, their battery engineers, ev everyone's paying attention to this one. It's not going to happen for a while. Yeah, and anytime you do see it, you know, for listeners out there who sometimes see these things passed around of iPhones blowing up or whatever, every time that has ever come out ever, it's always somebody using some knockoff Chinese charger or something like that. Stick to the charger cable you get out of the box or stick to known brands and buy well, from known vendors. The, the other thing is that the... 
these are relatively rare incidences, right? Yes. The thing that was a hallmark of the Samsung one is that there were a number of cases reported in a short period of time. Oh, yeah, and they hadn't sold that and, many phones yet. And it was it was repeated. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't just a one off experience that Samsung had to look into. It was it was something that they had one, and then you heard three more reports, and then right. another report, and then another report, and the one that burned the hole through the airplane floor, and all of this, right? With Apple, we every phone generation you hear of maybe one case where it's happened. Yeah, and Apple does their due diligence. You know, they they contact the owner, they look into it. In every news story you read, yes, Apple has contacted the owner, and it's resolved. And I'm sure that they learn something from it, whether it's people sitting on their phones and they increase the rigidity of the phone case, or it's the knockoff power adapter, or or what. But they figure out what the problem is, and it's usually a very limited problem. It's not like there's an epidemic. Right. Um, you know, ba- batteries, they require space to expand and contract because heat causes things to expand and contract. Um, you have to manage heat. You have to manage overcharging. You may have to manage discharging. You have to not puncture them. You have to not flex them. So there are a number of constraints around battery design. And they've taken many of these into account. It doesn't mean something bad can't happen, but they're pretty much always on the ball into looking into it and figuring out why. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Samsung example where we went months with Samsung shrugging their shoulders and saying, we don't know. We think it's that factory. Oh, but what's happening from the other factory too? We don't know. Right. We don't know. It, it took until January to get an answer as to, to why this thing had happened. Mm-hmm. Right? And even then, it wasn't the most clear answer. It wasn't a conclusive answer. So... I, I would not be concerned about Apple and batteries at this time. No, I'm not. I want to take a moment and talk about Mara. So Mara.ai is an application, and it, it can change the way you run. Thanks to smartphones, even casual runners can map their routes, create playlists, track their progress, things like that. But but all of it's always meant you had to stop and look at your phone. Now, you, Neil, you know me. I, I like voice-first technologies. You know, I have mm-hmm. the Amazon Echo devices. I have the Google Home devices. I like being able to issue voice commands and have things happen. And Mara is a hands-free running assistant that uses voice recognition and the microphone in your earbuds to help you do these things for your runs. So you can say what kind of run you'd like to do. You can ask questions about your speed and your pace. You can have her play albums and playlists from your music library. And she can tell you how you're doing in comparison to your past runs and warn you about changes in weather. So, you know, no one wants to be caught out running in the rain, right? You don't run in the rain. I did the other so, night. It was very cold. No one likes that, right? No. No. So wouldn't it be nice if your phone told you when you were about to run in the rain? Yes. You're about to get caught out? Okay. So Mara can do that. And Mara can also connect to Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, and you can ask her about lifetime statistics and records you've set while you're getting ready for your next run. So visit Mara.ai to download your free virtual running assistant today. That's M-A-R-A dot A-I. You know, I'm noticing more and more devices that I have are able to integrate with the Amazon Echo devices. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you and I both have automatic in our car. Automatic is the little dongle that plugs into the OBD2 connector. Yeah. And the other day I realized that I could sit in here and ask the uh, the Amazon Echo, and I'm intentionally avoiding saying the name of the, va- the assistant so I don't issue the wake word um, and have it respond. I could ask how much fuel I have in the car. That's cool. So I'm sitting here in my house, and I'm getting ready to go somewhere. Hey, do I have gas? Yes. Yes, you do. You have this much range. Perfect. That's great news, right? It was kind of cool, because that's one of the things that happens in my house, is my wife will look at me and say, do I have gas in the car? 
well, shoot, I don't know. I don't remember what the needle said when I got out of the car, but I can <laughs> ask the uh, Echo device, and it'll tell me now. So these things are cool. I'm, I'm very appreciative of things like Mara and Automatic integrating with Alexa. Now, I reviewed the Eero Wi-Fi base stations because we were talking about earlier the uh, notion that Apple was potentially getting out of making airports. Yeah. So the, these were sent to me to review, and they arrive in a box of three. I think they're sold in ones and threes, um, but it makes sense if you're trying to cover area to, to think about how many you need. Um, they recommend that for... Uh, you know, what, 700 square feet, you only need one of them. For for 1,800 to 2,000 square feet, you can use two of them and you'll reach full coverage. And if you have a bigger house, then you need the three or more. And what they are is a mesh network, right? Because what happens is people have homes that have low signal spots in them. And invariably, it's somewhere you actually like to sit, right? Mm-hmm. The way our homes are constructed is that Wi-Fi is is a radio wave, and it bounces off the surfaces in the house and then reflects. And so you can sometimes get great signal coverage that way, but sometimes you can get areas that just don't get coverage at all. And it makes radio waves kind of a dark art, right? It's, it's, it's magic that's hard to understand, and people go to school for it. There are people who have doctorates in understanding wireless technology and, and radio science. So... What they're doing here is they're creating a network that instead of having an extension which has its own network name, and you have to join that extender's network, which is a little clunky, they're making a mesh where each router joins and extends the initial ra- the initial router settings. So you don't have to know, is it a network name? Is it this? Is it that? You just know you've joined the network and you're getting full signal. So Eero attempts to make this very simple, right? They have a very simple base. The base is got two network ports on it, one that connects to your main internet modem, and one that then connects to a downstream switch if you have it or other accessories. Uh, a USB port that is completely not useful at all is for you as a consumer, right? We're, we're used to airport expresses where you can plug in a printer or yeah. uh, plug in a, you know, some people have routers that you can plug in hard drives, things like that. No, Eero doesn't do that. The USB port is reserved to them for diagnostic use only, they say. But... Um, you know, you, you put one in your main modem, and then you can go ahead and put one elsewhere where you need signal. Um, they recommend that it be about 40 feet away at the furthest. I was, was experimenting with this, and I had one in the bottom floor and one corner of the house, and I had one in the upstairs on the second story in the opposite corner of the house so that I could cover the furthest area from the, uh, the router. And I went around and measured my, my signal strength throughout the house and found where the weak spots were. And none of them were too weak that it really necessitated having a second mesh router. But, you know, for the purposes of this experiment, I had to put one somewhere. So I put it upstairs. And interestingly, my signal got worse in some areas. It's weird. It really was. It got better in a few places, but it got worse in others. What was neat was that doing this experiment really revealed that places that I thought I had the worst signal in the house, I actually had really strong signal. So it was cool that I did this, but um, but I, the, the truth is, using the single Eero base for me in in this eighteen hundred square foot place would have worked better than adding the second one in some ways. Yeah, it is interesting. It is. What I will say is that Eero's app is pretty cool. If you liked the Apple Airport Utility app, mm-hmm. Eero's is better, and it's not easy to put Apple to shame. Right. They did a good job on this application. It's very smooth. It's very easy to use. It's very easy to reserve addresses. It's very easy to set up uh, static IPs. It's very easy to do port forwarding. It's really 
well thought out. They did a good job on the app. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the key to taking the place of an airport router is that ease of use. Um, you know, signal design, whatever aside, uh, anybody who's ever had to do the admin admin login on a Linksys WRT router or some piece of crap D-Link or something knows exactly what a, a nightmare it is to to manage those things, to navigate them. I mean, God, now every cable company forces you to have a built-in Wi-Fi modem uh, router into the modem. And so I have to go in and like manually disable their Wi-Fi so it's not broadcasting alongside my Wi-Fi. And, all, and it's just like, and you have to go into this like archaic, just a just nightmares of menus and, and confusing things that even for somebody who's computer literate like me, um, just, it, it's not a fun thing to do. So that, that ease of use is, is definitely a big selling point. Yeah. And it's, it's the, the ease of use is great, but um, it's, there, there were problems with the network and, and, not for me necessarily because I didn't have so much trying to go on with it, but for other people that I've talked to about it, um, when you connect a switch to it, for example, because you do have wired devices, and, and it's true, right? If I talk about the wired devices we have here, if you have a Lutron setup for HomeKit, you have to have a wired bridge. So you have to wire that somewhere, right? Right. And so then if you have that device and a couple of other bridges for HomeKit stuff, well, then you need to have a switch plugged into the router so that you can connect all of them. So you're going to end up with a situation where many people who are doing HomeKit are going to have wired devices. You know, the Philips Hue bridge, you have to plug it in with a wire. Right. Um, there, there were a number of people that I talked to that said that when they had switches like that or when they tried to have reserved addresses, um, that it all fell apart for them. That, that it simply was not working nearly as well. What if you, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess you could, if you had an old router laying around, you could disable the wireless function of it and use that to give yourself more wired ports. Would that break it? Um, well, you're getting to a little more esoteric stuff, right? You can do that. Then you put Eero into bridge mode and let the router handle the assigning of IP addresses. But there were people who had trouble with that too. Now, but how does that work with multiple Eeros? Like... Do you let one of the Eros assign IP addresses and then well, what if a device connects to it? Like how- that you can do that way. But in your scenario where you're saying you've got an old router and you turn the wireless off on it and let it handle the wired, you're best if you have that assign the IP addresses and let the Eros right, act yeah. and Let bridge. that do the DHCP and then, yeah. Yeah. But there were people that had trouble with it doing that too. So I, I would say, and that's why I gave this kind of a, a three and a half star review from me because it, it functioned and it functioned reasonably well with some caveats from me, but we're aware of other problems people are having with it. So it's not a four star review. It's not a five star review. It's something that, that did function, but there's definitely room for improvement. So if you're this new breed of computing person that we talked about, who is yes. perfectly happy with an iPad, uh, perfectly happy with a MacBook Pro with USB-C ports on it. Perfectly happy with your iPhone. No need to go wired on anything. Who deals with that crap? I just want it to be as simple as possible, which, again, I think is a majority of computer users out there. Does that person have any issues with the Eero? Uh, the only issue that they may have with it is that some people have noticed that network speeds uh, for file transfers on the LAN are slower with an Eero than they are with some of the others out there. Got it. So if you have a network-attached storage device, you may find an issue. But if you're talking about internet speeds, no. 
if you're the iPad user and you've got wireless printing and that's about it going on on your network and and uh, maybe a home entertainment device like a Roku or an Apple TV. And maybe some dead spots in your home. Yeah, this is the device. That's fine. Cool. We'll totally work for you. I've stumped you. You're thinking what to say next. No, I, I think you I think you covered it pretty well. <laughs> All right. We're going to be covering some more of these. If you have a favored one that you like and, and are listening out there, uh, we're going to do the Linksys Velop next. We've got a Synology piece that's not a uh, not a mesh router. But if you want us to cover the network or Netgear Orbeez or some of these others like Plume or Luma or you know any, any of these others out there, please go ahead and send us an email and tell us which one you'd like to hear more about because that'll help us select what we decide to cover next. Great. Yeah. So, Neil, you reviewed a HomeKit-connected camera. I did. Uh, it's the D-Link Omna 180 camera. Um, interesting product. Um, I was generally pretty happy with it. I think that... Wait, uh, wait, wait. You scare me when you say it's an interesting product. It's uh, not a good product. It's, not, it's, it's interesting. What, what's wrong here? I mean, I, I think it's fine. I... Don't personally another ringing endorsement from Neil Hughes, my <laughs> friends. Well, it's one of these things where you know sometimes you get assigned a product by you know my publisher or whatever to review, and th- this this is not something that I personally have a use for. Uh, my wife didn't really want anything to do with it. In fact, she started uh, when she was around at night putting a cup over it so that it couldn't record <laughs> us. <laughs> she needed a tea cozy to stick over the top of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, as I said in the. Uh, uh, headline on this review. I think it's a great pet baby or nanny cam. I don't have a baby or a nanny. I do have a cat, but um, she doesn't really leave bed much. Uh, she's 18 years old, so uh, not really much of a need for a webcam myself. However, if you fall in one of those categories and you're looking for something you can set up that you don't need to be discreet uh, and you don't mind the lack of cloud storage, I don't think that this is a, a bad product to get. I think you'll pr- be pretty happy with it. Uh, it's plug and play simple. The software works. The iOS and HomeKit integration is good. Um, the, the feature I like the most is uh, the screen is divided into a bunch of uh, sections, essentially, and you can choose which ones you want to activate the motion detection sensor, uh, uh, capabilities of it. Um, and then when you turn that on, you can get push notifications for it. You can um, uh, have it uh, record automatically a 20-second period before and after the motion was detected so you can see what's going on. Um, it is not a discrete camera and it does not have cloud backup. So if you, somebody robs your house and they see it laying there and they pick it up and steal it, uh, they're going to have all the footage and the SD card and everything else. So, yeah, but this is, this is not a terrible compromise either, right? I mean, the the problem with these cameras that are cloud storage is that you have to pay for the cloud storage. So you subscribe for, for so many dollars a month for the rest of your life to pay for cloud storage. And here you just drop in a 64 gig SD card and, and Bob's your uncle. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, you're very happily not paying for cloud storage, and you've got all the storage you want. So you just have to make sure your camera doesn't get stolen. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that there's a market for this product. I think that people that are security conscious would want something that offers cloud storage. I think it would be I nice. I'd like them to put like a K lock slot on there so you could lock it down. With <laughs> right, exactly. Lock. I, I right? think that it would be nice if D Link offered both options because I think that certainly, like you said, the lack of cloud storage is appealing to some people just because they don't want to pay for something. Um, and I would certainly be one of those people. I would never pay for cloud storage. Well, if for. you if you pay two hundred bucks for the camera, right, and you're you're agreeing to pay however many bucks a month for the rest of your life for the, the it's a huge cost. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that this would be a great opportunity for D-Link to offer iCloud integration um, and have the video files that you record back up to iCloud Drive. Ooh. That would but be a way for them to do it. they can't charge for it, Neil. Well, th- what do they care? 
Well, they they're not charging for it anyhow. Revenue, dude. But they're not charging for it right now anyhow, so. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, this is, uh, I think, one of the standout features of this product is uh, the fact that the camera on it is a true 180-degree view. So I actually was testing it out in my kitchen, looking out on the rest of my apartment, and I had to put it up right to the edge of the counter because uh, everything to the left and right gets picked up. So it has to be uh, have a clear 180-degree view, otherwise some of it's going to get blocked off. Uh, it works at night uh, in black and white. Uh, the, the biggest limitations beyond the cloud storage issue is iOS uh, limitations, which would be um, the Apple uh, Home app does not allow you to tap into the video files that are saved on it because that's not one of the capabilities of, of the Home app. Um, if, if you get an alert that uh, there was motion detected, it will show you a small thumbnail of what happened on your lock screen, but then as soon as you open it, uh, it goes away and just takes you to a live view. So if you see it 10 minutes later, it's kind of pointless. So you um, have to open up an Uma app intentionally instead of... Yeah, you have to open the Omna app to... Uh, uh, yeah, Omna, I'm sorry. To, uh, to view it. Um, and, you know, things like it would be nice to be able to say in HomeKit or in the Home app, um, only alert me of motion when I'm not at home. Like give me a location-based alert type thing or when I set a scene for or something like that. It's kind of all or nothing at the moment. You have to go in and say, yes, alert me. Um, in the home app and then you'll get alerts or you turn it off and say, don't alert me. Uh, that should really be a customizable trigger um, for right. automation. You, you get a lot of false positives from walking around your apartment, basically. Right, exactly. I had mine set up when I was testing it um, f- to go uh, trigger when the front door opens. So in that sense, it worked. The door opened. The problem was if I went out to check the mail, if I opened the refrigerator, which is right next to the front door, it triggered it every single time. So I'd go through and check all the videos and it's like, there I am getting a snack. There I am going to check the mail. You know, like <laughs> It's not particularly interesting footage but that's to be expected when i wasn't really expecting anyone to rob my place either so yeah you just moved in right so <laughs> i you know I, I mean if you need something to keep an eye on a bit ba- and it has like a two-way microphone so um you can hear stuff but also you know speak to the person there and all that so if you wanted to like comfort a baby or a pet or something uh that would be something you could do with it as well freak out your wife when you're not home that is true i tested that feature out too so how would that work out for you? Um, <laughs> she was like, where is that coming from? What is going on? But I always have weird <laughs> gadgets here. So she's always just kind of like, you know. I, I did that same thing to, to my poor wife, my long-suffering wife, when I was away on business. And I started whispering <laughs> through the, the speaker of the camera at, at the kids. And she thought the house was haunted because she couldn't really hear it. But the kids kept going over to the camera and, and w- talking, whispering back at me. And then I cranked it up a little bit and 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 started whispering, and she was sure the place was haunted. She texted me saying, we have to move. <laughs> In other news, I'm terrible. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, these, these are good gadgets. So the, one of the problems that people worry about a little bit is these Internet of Things devices getting hacked. And, you know, what, what happens if someone gains access to it and can whisper horrible things at your sleeping child, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, and that's that's I mean, happened wh- before with right. other devices. Yeah, uh, it makes me think of the episode from the latest uh, season of uh, of uh, Black Mirror and why people put tape on their camera on their computer. Um, I think that um, you know supposedly things are more secure with HomeKit um, and Apple's secure authentication chip prevents uh, you know outside nefarious users from hacking in. Uh, time will always tell if that's true or not. If you're paranoid about these kind of things, you probably shouldn't have a camera in your home. Well, one of the things that 
I've thought is that cameras in the home are one thing that cameras outside the home may be more useful. And there aren't any of those yet for HomeKit. They're coming, they're, but they're, they're not here yet. The outdoor cameras for HomeKit are coming. We saw some of the things that hinted at that at CES, but they're not here yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it seems to me that that you know if you're worried about people coming and robbing you, seeing suspicious people outside your house is just as good as seeing suspicious people inside your house, at least for the notification something's up. Um, and it also makes people inside the home like like our wives who put tea cozies on top of the cameras feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 that doesn't really personally bother me. I, I feel pretty secure with it, but you can never really vouch for any of these kind of platforms because anything is possible. Um, and time will tell, you know, how reliable or secure anything is. Um, I think that if you're on the market for a HomeKit connected camera and you don't mind the limitations of this, um, and in some ways I think the limitations are, are, uh, make it better. Uh, some folks don't want to pay for cloud storage. So, uh, I, I think it's a good product if you know what you're getting um, and you're happy with that. But as as a camera, the camera itself, the 180 degree view, night vision, um, uh, microphone, speaker, all that kind of stuff, I think it's great. Plug and play HomeKit. I mean, I had the thing up and running in like two seconds. It's it's good. Cool. And and what rating did you give this? I gave it three and a half out of five. All right. Why? Because I, I think that uh, if you are a security conscious user, this is pretty useless to you. It, it looks obvious that you have a camera there and so somebody if comes in and robs your house all they gotta do is just pick it up and unplug it and you're screwed <laughs> and now they've got all the footage of them robbing your house and you have nothing okay cool i appreciate you explaining that for me sure so uh what else would you like to discuss this afternoon uh, i think we covered it all pretty well didn't we tell, tell me about warren buffett is there anything we can talk about warren buffett for uh he um he has purchased $17 billion worth of stake in Apple. Um, he sees uh, the company uh, getting to a, a uh, uh, market capitalization of more than a trillion dollars, uh, which would be the first of a uh, publicly traded company. So uh, the stock, because of that news and a number of other factors on the market, has been uh, inching higher, closed above uh, 140 for the first time this week. Um, and if they uh, get as high as uh, 147, I believe, uh, then they will set a new record for market capitalization of about 775 billion, uh, inching their way closer to a trillion dollars. Uh, the stock is already at an all-time high um, and has been going that way for a few weeks now. Um, the the reason that the stock is at an all-time high, but the market cap is not, is because of the share buyback and and uh, various. Uh, uh, the seven to one split they did a few years ago um, kind of changes the value of the shares as as it relates to uh, the overall value of the company. But uh, shares are trading right now at or near an all time high, um, and they're getting near their all time high for market capitalization. And a uh, big reason for that is because uh, investors on Wall Street really admire Warren Buffett. They think he knows what he's talking about. Fair enough. Thank you for summarizing that for us. You got it. So. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast, fantastic episode 110. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can read my musings at appleinsider.com, and you can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. I'm your host, Victor Marks. I'm at vmarks on Twitter. We'd like to thank again Mara for sponsoring today's episode. Mara is a hands-free virtual running assistant that uses cutting-edge voice recognition to help coach you to better runs. Play music, get updates on your location, pace, or the weather, and compare your current speed with past runs without ever stopping to look at your phone. 
Using your earbuds, Mara can hear your commands and put them into action. Download your new running partner for free at mara.ai today. 